0: Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. And uh, we are in Luke chapter 9. We're going to begin in verse 10 this morning. Luke chapter 9, verse 10. You'll find that on page 866 in the Pew Bible in front of you. While you're finding your way to uh, Luke, I do want to thank you uh, for your generous praise and affirmation in which many of you have reached out to me over this past month. And very thankful for your love. Uh, for me and my family. And uh, it is uh, a, a return to you. I, I can't believe uh, I continually am aware of the great privileges in which God has given me that that I get to do what I love to do. And what I love to do, to study God's Word and proclaim it and to love His people. God's goodness to me is uh, beyond my imagination. And I'm so richly and eternally grateful to Him. That He has called me to do this and even brought me here to do this with you. I do want you to know that though I love being a pastor, I love being a Christian more. And before I am a shepherd, I am a sheep. And even though being a pastor is a great and unimaginable honor, the greater honor that I consider is that I am a member of Hamilton Baptist Church. I believe myself to be a member first who happens to be called and gifted for the pastoral ministry. I think you all are members first, and we're all called to serve this body and our community in many and various ways. And I think about, yes, you honor me, but how many people could we honor who so faithfully give and serve this faith community without any recognition? And we're so thankful for, for all of us here, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so thank you. Thank God for Hamilton Baptist Church. I do also want to uh, draw your attention to uh, this insert that is in uh, your bulletin. I don't know if you noticed this. This is uh, an insert describing a week of prayer in which we will engage in uh, starting a week from tomorrow, a week from Monday, November 2nd. And then culminating on November 8th when we will participate in the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. Now, if you've been around for the past three or four years, you know what that's going to be like. It'll be a very unusual service. The message will be very short. We're going to spend a lot of time during our service becoming aware of the persecution of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then interceding for them as a congregation you also note on the back of your handout, there's a schedule. There's going to be daily emails to help lead you in prayer. We're going to be calling a church-wide fast on the Thursday, what is it? Uh, I think Thursday the 5th, that we are going to call the church to fast from sunup to sundown. And we are going to meet here Thursday at noon for those who are available. And we are going to lift up our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. If you cannot meet with us, we would ask you to block out that time wherever you may be that you might intercede for our persecuted brothers and sisters. We're also going to take up an offering that's going to go in support of our underground pastors and of widows and orphans that have uh, emerged because of the persecution on pastors. In fact, it was last week that I had the great privilege to sit with a brother in Christ. His name is Saint. Pastor Saint. He's from Nigeria. And he came and sat across my coffee table with me and he told me how he had recently, this, this year, six men in his church locked into, in a car and burned to death by Boko Haram, leaving behind six widows and 24 orphans. And he testified to how God is growing his church through this tragedy. And how God is moving His church and, and providing for these now widows and these orphans, which the church now assumes is their responsibility to care for physically, spiritually, financially, and how God is working in mighty and incredible ways. And, and He uh, uh, relayed to me that the church is persecuted. And we forget that here. And I don't want to forget it. I want to remind ourselves that our brothers and sisters are boldly proclaiming Christ at, at times at the cost of their very lives. And so we will remember them and we will take up an offering to support them. And it's my hope and prayer that you will give sacrificially, that you will give in support of your brothers and sisters in Christ. We will do that on November 8th. And so may God be pleased to work through that service. Well, I now invite you to turn your attention to Luke chapter 9. Beginning in verse 10. Please hear now the Word of God. On their return, the apostles told Him all that they had done. And He took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed Him. And He welcomed them and spoke to them the kingdom of God cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to Him and said, Send the crowds away to go to the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provision. For we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about fifty And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, He looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Our Father, we're thankful for Your Word. That we can now consider, we're thankful that we can set our eyes and our hearts upon our Lord Jesus Christ as he reveals himself to be God himself, standing before the masses, creating in order to provide for their needs. We ask that you would help us this morning that we might see Jesus through his word that we might be drawn closer to Him, that we might understand that He is the bread of life, that whoever comes to Him will never hunger, whoever believes in Him will never thirst. Perhaps some for the very first time would come to Christ, that they might find not only forgiveness of sins, but the satisfaction of their souls in this God who has come to earth to die for us. Help us to see Him. Help us to hear from Him. Through the work of your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In 1805, Robert Morrison was commissioned by the London Missionary Society to go to China. The problem was that the only ships sailing from England to China were run by the East Indian Company and they refused to transport missionaries. And so Robert Morrison set sail to the United States in order to set sail for China. And as he got to the U.S. and then quickly booked passage across the world to China, the ship's owner heard about the extent in which he was going to to reach this far away land. And he said to him, Mr. Morrison, do you really expect that you will make an impression on the idolatry of the great Chinese empire? No, sir, he replied. I expect God will. And God did. He richly and profoundly blessed Morrison's ministry. In fact, the impact continues even this very present day. See, our brother Robert Morrison learned a lesson that I think Jesus would like to teach us today from this passage, that in the hands of Jesus, the insufficient become sufficient. The weak become powerful. The insignificant become significant. All in the hands of Christ. And the reason is, as we will see, Jesus is God. He stands here as Yahweh uh, offer them bread in the wilderness. He comes to them in the wilderness as Israel flees out there. And what does He do? Just as He had done in ages past, He feeds them bread. This is the, one of the most famous miracles, the most well-attested miracles that Jesus has ever performed, the feeding of 5,000. And yet so often I think it's perhaps wrongly taught as a call to charity. This story is not a story about a boy who shares It is about a powerful and and majestic God who provides for our needs. It is, in fact, perhaps the clearest revelation at this point in Luke's Gospel to who Jesus is. And we've been asking that over and over and over again. Who is He? Who is He? This is the burden of early Luke. From Luke 1 all the way to Luke 9 and verse 50, the question keeps being asked. Who is He? In fact, perhaps you remember, it was last week that Herod asked it. In verse 9 of Luke 9, Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? Who is this? And it's right after that question is asked that Jesus leads them out to the wilderness in a place where they cannot find food and He supernaturally feeds them bread, which should sound very familiar to you and I. And even if it doesn't, it sounded very familiar to them. They understood what Jesus was saying about Himself because after this picnic... The crowd is so uh, impacted by what Christ has done. If you read John's account, he says that they attempted to take Jesus and quote, by force, make Him King. They understood who He was through this miracle. And Jesus reveals Himself to us in it. In fact, He reveals us so much that there, there's so much truth in this passage that i delighted in reflecting on over the last couple of weeks. And I'd like to explain to you today the, the first truth that I, I want to communicate, though it's not the main point of this passage, far from it, but I think it's clearly taught, is that we should reflect Jesus' compassion. Reflect his compassion. You note the story begins in verse 10 when it says, on the return, the apostles told him all that they had done. Now remember last week, the apostles went out on that mission, uh, that short-term mission endeavor to proclaim the kingdom of God and to cure diseases and they would go and stay in someone's house until it was time to leave and they were rejected in some villages and on and on they went. We're not sure how long they were gone. Some speculate that they were gone perhaps a month, perhaps even longer. And finally they returned from this mission trip and they all meet back with Jesus. And they begin to explain to Jesus what it is they had done. And when Jesus begins evidently to hear about what they have done, he realizes, hey, it might be a good time for us just to get away for a, a little while to, to uh, go on a retreat, if you will. As you see in verse, reading on in verse 10, and he took the bread and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. You, you can kind of catch the nuance there. He's withdrawing with them. He wants to be apart with them. It seems to me that they might be exhausted from the ministry in which they have um, given themselves to. I don't know if you've ever been on a short-term mission trip, but I find them incredibly exhausting in a wonderful way. And and I trust that that Jesus understands this ministry has taken a toll upon them and they need some time to be alone with Jesus. Just like the women right now are on retreat. Jesus withdraws on this retreat to a town called Bethsaida, which is north of the Sea of Galilee. It's a very desolate place. In fact, chapter, uh, verse 12 explains just that. It was call, They call it a wilderness or a desolate place. Even in Mark's Gospel, which I'll refer to uh, uh, occasionally, Mark tells us they went to a secluded place to rest. And yet, uh, their endeavors were quickly spoiled. They did not rest long, for thousands of people began to show up at their retreat. Look in verse 11. When the crowds learned it, they followed Him and Uh, They're coming after Jesus. We know again by the other accounts that he went by boat. And so perhaps they saw them sailing out on the boat. And, and the crowds are learning this. And they begin to watch Him. Where is He going? And they begin to follow Him from the shoreline. Mark tells us many recognized them and ran out on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And so you, the picture is as they're going, as they're sailing to the north of the Sea of Galilee, these people, thousands, are coming from village after village and gathering people up as they go along, headed to where Jesus is going uh, to come ashore, calling out to their friends along the way. And and there they are. They're looking for rest. Just a a little break for ministry perhaps. A few quiet moments perhaps. And despite their efforts, they are now swarmed with thousands of needy people. I wonder how, how you might respond to that or how the apostles responded. I wonder if they were angry, frustrated, perhaps depressed. Well, if they were, Jesus wasn't any of these as you see in verse 11, he welcomed them. He welcomed them and, and did what? And spoke to them the kingdom of God and cured those who have need of healing. You see, he, 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 he was delighted that they were there. Even in the midst of the, the trouble in which these apostles uh, were in, in, encountering, their need for rest. Mark again tells us that he had compassion on them because they were like, you probably know it, sheep without a shepherd. And I want you to simply, as we begin this passage, to see the compassion of Christ even for these very superficial crowds. As He begins to preach the Gospel to them, proclaim the Kingdom of God to them, and and show them what the Kingdom is like by reversing their diseases, by reversing the the effects of the, the curse as He's ministering to them and He loves them. And not only did He love them now, you should understand that He loves us now and that Jesus is always available to us. Here's a horde that's invading his privacy and disturbing his rest. He does not look at them and say, why do you all come back later? He does not put up the closed sign. He does not say, listen, we need some time to be by ourselves. But he welcomed them. He, he invited them into this retreat in which he had been. It reminds me of that great story in John chapter four, when when Jesus again seems exhausted and he, he he collapses there at the well in Sychar, and he even sends the the apostles away. Right, he says, "You guys go get some groceries, and I'm going to just stay here for a little while." And he sat down by himself. Now, I wonder if the noonday sun felt good for Jesus in that solitude. He has been ministering uh, non stop, He has been dealing with increasingly demanding crowds and confused disciples. I wonder if he's drained as he sits there and delighting to be alone with no questions to be asked, no needs to met, no pharisaical trap to avoid, no Peter, right? Just, uh, just uh, by himself, right? And then he hears the footfall of a woman, doesn't he? Someone's coming, and she is in great need. To be honest, if it was probably me there, I may have feigned sleep, just closed my eyes, pretended to be out. But not so, Christ. He rose and engaged her and brought her into salvation, reconciled her to God. This is the compassion of our Lord. This is the compassion that, that, that continues today. I love how Isaiah puts it in chapter 30 and verse 18. Listen to these words. The Lord longs. What, what does God long to do? The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. This is what He has done for them here here in this text, for this woman at the well, and for you and I who are in Christ. He is always available to us. He is always compassionate towards us. And in light of that, you and I should be available to others. I believe because of what Christ has done for us, we should serve as we have been served by Him. I tell you, blessed are you when you sacrifice your time. Blessed are you when you serve when you are exhausted. For God will work through you and in you. Remember the compassion of Christ reflected. But as I mentioned, I don't think that's the main point of this story, though a lesson I think he would have us to learn. We turn on to point number two that we should trust in Jesus' provision. Note verse 12. Now the day began to wear away, and the 12 came to him and said, Send the crowds away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provision, for we are here in a desolate place. You see that Jesus evidently is preaching long. The day is winding down and the apostles, always astute, right? they perceive a problem. Now, these people have walked miles to get here. They, in their excitement, they've taken no provision. They haven't planned They go to Jesus and say, Jesus, getting, getting late. We should wrap this up soon right? so we could send people home. Now, we don't know what their motivation is. It might be because they care for the people. It might be they just want to get away from these people. But whatever their suggestion is, it's it's a reasonable suggestion. Whatever the motivation is, it makes sense to us. And so Jesus listens to this well-reasoned suggestion and responds to it with a totally irrational one. Look in verse 13 as we continue on. After they they say, um, go, send them away, he says to them, you give them something to eat. Right? Since you're so sensitive to this issue, right? Since you're so concerned about them, why don't you feed them? Right? And, and we'll find out in verse 14, by the way, there are 5,000 men. And, and they're probably, that's just the men. Right? Back in that day, they, they would ask me, well, Stephen, why do you have so few children? Right? They, they have eight, ten kids. I'm sure many of those kids are out. There. Their wives are there. There's probably not just 5,000 people there. There are maybe 15,000 people there, 25,000 people there. And he looks at the apostles in light of the massive crowd before him without explanation or direction. He says, why don't you feed the thousands? And of course, that's absurd. I mean, it makes no sense. He knew he, that it couldn't feed the crowd. Why then did he ask it? Well, because he knew they couldn't feed the crowd, right? He's trying to teach them something. In John's gospel, it says, he asked this only to test them, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. It's like the final exam before they leave Galilee. You know, will you pass? And so what are the options? Well, they begin to review them there in verse 13. After he says, you give them something to eat, they said, we have no more than five loaves or two fish, right? In John's Gospel, we realize that Andrew found some little boy's lunch. We know, by the way, this is a poor boy because the loaves are barley. These would be barley biscuits, not, not big loaves of bread. And, and little sardines, spiced and, and pickled. And, and this is what he's got. Just enough for his lunch. And so that's one option. But well, that doesn't seem like that's going to work. And then, Well, there's another option that they consider. You read on in verse 13. Unless we are to go... And buy food for all these people, right? We could go down to Costco, perhaps, and, and, you know, we'll just load up. And we'll take food back to feed the thousands. Of course, Philip, again in another Gospel, does some quick calculations. And he realizes this will cost 200 denarii, or about eight months' wages. And by the way, they have no money. So option A doesn't look very good. And option B doesn't look very good. And so they're baffled and they're, they, they, they're frustrated. And they think, this is impossible. But I wonder if there's another option in which they're not considering. Option number three, I would suggest, will be Jesus, right? That's the right answer. To ask Jesus for help. And I think it's somewhat of an absurd story because there they are. They're they're standing there. You can kind of picture them perhaps in your mind's eye, all 12 of them. And they're looking at some little boy's lunch that Andrew stole. Or or they're, they're opening their wallets and they're seeing they've got no money in there. Or they're looking at the masses and the thousands of people. And they're going back and forth between all their options and their problems. And all the while, Jesus is standing right there. And they spent a year with Jesus and he has not encountered a need which he cannot meet and rather meet easily. And yet it does not occur to them to ask him. They forget they're with Jesus. I like how David Platt puts it. It was like they were standing in front of Niagara Falls and they couldn't find anything to drink. They have a small view of Jesus. They they act like you and I sometimes act, as practical atheists. I'm not saying we are atheists. Sometimes we act like it. And what I mean is there may be challenges in front of us, and we, we see those challenges simply from a human perspective. We, we calculate our collective resources and talents and see if we have the ability to overcome it and never, ever looking for the faith that might, we might require we act like men, I think at times, without a God. We think only in terms of our abilities and, it, and never consider them that they have power available to them through Jesus Christ. You see, what I think Jesus is trying to teach them is that they should see their insufficiency. Right? He wants them to be aware that He's asking them to do something they cannot do. Right? Uh, he could have solved this problem immediately, right? He, we know He's going to solve the problem. But why ask them to feed the crowd? And they're running around, they're all flustered, and they're doing calculations, and they're, they're, they're they're grabbing lunches from people, and, and they're all just thinking about, well, how can we do this? And they're, he's leading them to despair, isn't he? He's leading them to get to the point where they realize they have no resources to actually do what Christ has called them to do, and I think he wants them to feel that. He wants them to become aware that he is calling them to do that which they cannot do. They need to understand they are insufficient to do what God has called. And, and uh, you need to feel this. We all need to feel this. Listen, one of the great dangers for you who have been in ministry for years and years, one of the great dangers that I've been in ministry for years and years is that we get so proficient at the work in which we do, the teaching the Sunday school or, or leading the praise band or, or working the nursery or preaching the sermons that we think, I got this. I got this covered. And we we fail to see our insufficiency. And if we do not see our insufficiency, we will never call out to Christ. We will never reach out to Him and say, I can't do this. I can't do it. Help me. It is only when we understand He calls us to do the impossible that we will run to Him for help. And He's desperate for them to see this. But He doesn't want them just to see their insufficiency. They want... He wants them to see His sufficiency. He has created an opportunity to show His power. You understand that our weaknesses are quite often platforms for the glory of God. For God to work through us. Weakness and helplessness is a wonderful place to minister from. It's a wonderful place to be as we look to God for help. That He might get the glory. You do understand, I hope, my brothers and sisters that God is not limited by your inability and that your weakness in no way stops God. And I think therefore God often allows challenges in our life that seem simply beyond us. I think he does so, so we come to our end and we look to him. Quite often we don't do that. We, we, we despair, we get frustrated, we get angry, we give up. But his goal is for us to stop looking at ourselves and begin to look at us. And he matures us in doing that. So I don't know where you are today. I don't know if you're facing challenges in which you feel helpless. I, I don't know if you feel like you're in the wilderness without any resources. The problems seem insurmountable. How am I going to fix my marriage? How am I going to overcome this sin? How am I going to raise my children? How am I, how am I going to impact Ghana or Northern Virginia or the persecuted church? And we could declare it hopeless and we could despair and we say, I I can't do these things. Or we can go to him and we could tell him, God, I I don't know how to do what you've called me to do. I don't know. But but here's my lunch. I don't know how to feed this crowd. But this is what I have. Can you do anything with that? Can you work through this? Can you work through my inability? You might think, well, it's going to take a miracle for this person to come to faith in Christ. He doesn't want to hear anything about Jesus. I'm not not, therefore not going to tell him. Or we could say, God, I don't think he wants to hear. I don't think he wants to come to Christ, but I'm going to do it anyways. And perhaps you like to work in situations like that. My friends, I tell you, if you only do things within our own power, you will never experience God's provision through you. He wants to work through you. In fact, I think we see that in... Our third point, that Jesus wants us to participate in his ministry. See, so we not only trust in his provision, but we participate in his ministry. Look what Jesus does after they fail their test, if you will. In verse 14, For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50. And verse 15 tells us, And they did so. And He had them all, they had them all sit down. And so he sends out the apostles and he begins to get them involved in the ministry doesn't he? He says go out there and divide everybody up and get them to sit down we're about to do something and once the apostles go out and do the ministry in which Christ comes I ask them do they come back to him and verse 16 it says and taking the five loaves and the two fish note that Jesus will do four things number 1 he looks up to heaven acknowledging His Father. Number two, He said a blessing over them. We know from ancient texts that the Jews would pray a blessing before they would eat their food. Often, the prayer would be this, Praise be to You, O Lord our God, King of the world, who makes bread come from the earth and who provides for all You have created. Perhaps it is that prayer that Christ offered when He blessed the food. Perhaps it was responded by a thunderous 25,000 voiced Amen. And then thirdly, we see in verse 16, He breaks the bread and then He gives it to the disciples to set before the crowd. He, he gave it to them that they could give it to others. You notice that the disciples are going out serving. That Jesus makes the bread, doesn't He? But He doesn't serve a single person. It is only the disciples that give it out. Right? He, he, of course, didn't need their help. He could have caused bread to float down from heaven as He has done before but instead he gives it to those who are following him. And, and, and he sends them out to give. The, the apostles, he told the apostles, you give them something to eat. And now what are they doing? They're giving them something to eat. They turned away from themselves. They turned to Jesus. And now people are being fed by the great power of Christ. Many people have wondered, well, how does he do this? I mean, you got five little biscuits and two sardines and Does he start breaking off pieces and it's just multiplying in his hands? Does he he put it in a a basket and keeps pulling out food? I I have no idea, but I do know what he is doing. He is creating food. Every time the apostles return, there is more food in Jesus' hand. It is the most public miracle that Jesus had ever performed. It is the most documented miracle that Jesus has ever performed. And it is the most witnessed miracle that he has ever performed. And perhaps it is one of the ne- next to the resurrection, the greatest miracle. I mean, can you imagine the logistics of feeding 5,000, 25,000 people? Can you imagine if uh, thousands of people show up to your house for dinner tonight? You know, what's for dinner? My, my wife's been on retreat for, for, since Friday. She's still on retreat, leaving me home to um, feed seven children. And I'll tell you, making lunch was a minor miracle for me. I mean, it, it, everyone's got a different sandwich, and I want this, and I, it, was, it was stressful, right? I was just going to throw them some bread and let them have it. But um, 5,000 people, 25,000 people, he's, he's creating I mean, it's one thing to control creation. It's another thing to make creation. He is bypassing sowing and watering and reaping and winnowing and threshing and baking. No, just bam, bread. Right? He's creating fish. And I assume it's pickled and spiced already and and ready to eat. sounds nasty to me, but they must have loved it because they're all eating it. He's just giving it out. Creation is flowing from His hands just as the universe did when He first made it. That's His power. You understand the power of Christ? You understand how great and powerful pat- is nothing he cannot do. In fact, Paul would constantly write to the churches, "Oh, I just want you to know the incomparably great power of Christ. If you would just know that and experience that and understand that, that you might know it." I, I don't know if you've been following the news, uh, but uh, I'm sure most of you know this hurricane that, I guess, we praise the Lord, did not do the damage that we thought it would in Mexico. Hurricane Patricia. They say it's the most powerful hurricane that we have ever recorded since we've been doing these things. In fact, it's so powerful. You know that um, a nuclear warhead has one one-thousandth the power of a hurricane. And the Bible tells us that God rides the hurricane. In fact, do you know that a hurricane has one, one billionth the power of a simple eruption on the surface of the sun? And, and do you know that, that our sun, which is a very small star, has one one millionth the power of a supernova? And the Bible says he scatters the s- stars like sand. That, that's the power of our God. I mean that, that's the power of this man who has walked. He is greater than you could even imagine. We don't have the faintest idea of the power in which he holds. And and he says to us, he says to us Christians, if you are willing, I'll use you. My power will flow through you. Oh, that you might know the incomparably great power of God. Not that we would know it and see it necessarily in the passage and think, wow, isn't that incredible? But that we would actually experience God working through us. See, Jesus not only has power, but he wants to use that power in our life. He wants to meet needs through us, just as he did through the apostles. He wants to use us to meet the needs around us. And he wants to exercise his power in doing so. And and I I want you to be aware of this. I think so many people gather together in our churches across this land today. And they have very small ambitions. And and what I mean by that is they come and they're thinking, "I, I just want to be encouraged today. You know, I just need a little boost to get me through the week. My life is hard and will someone just, you know, I'm hoping that something's said or something's done or I have some type of experience where I just get a little charge so that I can make it through another week. And Jesus, I think, is telling us, listen, I want to do more than that. I want to use you. I want you to be a channel for my power. I want you to know my power. I want you to be overwhelmed by my power. I want you to allow the power that I have to work in your life. This is why he's calling for these apostles to do this. He's just, they're out, they're giving this bread and fish because it's what Christ has brought. But they brought Christ, right? Why bread and fish? Well, that's what they had. And so Jesus uses what we have and he multiplies it. In fact, I think they learned this lesson. You, you finish the book of Luke, and Luke writes another book, right? His sequel, the book of Acts. And you know what Jesus had told them to do? Not feed 5,000 people, but he said, Okay, I want you 120 guys to take this gospel and, and, and understand that the world is dark, and the world will hate you, and the world will try to kill you, and the world doesn't want to hear this. But uh, you 120 who have no resources on your own, I want you to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. This is what I want you to do. This is my plan. And And they must have thought... How, how can we do that? How, how can we possibly do that? You know what they said? Well, you know what we can do? We could pray. And and we could serve and we could talk about Jesus. That's what they did. And and if we do these things, Lord, will you work through us? Will you allow us to be used by you? And and they changed the world. They changed the entire world. I mean, we're experiencing the impact of it even today. Jesus wants to use you. He wants to minister through you. But he, more than that, he also wants to give blessings to you. I, I just Can you imagine how the apostles felt when they were doing this? Right, Because you saw the five biscuits and the two loaves, and somehow you're feeding thousands of people. Right? You keep coming back, and somehow there's always more food. And the crowds are astonished and, and the apostles are confused and Jesus is smiling and perhaps laughing at everyone and people are asking, where's this food coming from? And you're like, I don't know, but I keep going, I'll go get some more because Jesus has it. And, and off you go and you grab some more and you want some more food. In fact, they keep getting fed until they finally say enough, no more food. Look in verse 17. And all ate and were satisfied. That word satisfied is often used as the term to fatten up an animal. Right, It was like a Chinese buffet. They just ate and ate and ate and said, I can't eat anymore. I'm gorged. You've given us too much. Do you, could you, what joy that must have been in serving. Can you imagine the joy that must have been to be used by Christ in this way? In, in fact, I, you know, not only do they have joy in serving, but, but you notice after everyone's full, there's more left over than there was at the start. In fact, how much left over? Verse 17 tells us. And what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. How many apostles? Twelve apostles. That's not a coincidence, friends. He's teaching them something. He's saying when you give your life as a channel of God's blessing to others, and you stop thinking about your needs and what you want and what's going to be a blessing to you, but you say, I want to be a blessing to other people, He will in turn meet your needs in that act of service. He will provide for you in the midst of it. He will show Himself not only to be enough for those whom you serve, but enough for you as well. As He has told us, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He wants to minister through us and bless us in the process. And of course, it's a wonderful story, isn't it? And we've we've all heard it many times. And and, uh, sometimes I'm afraid we've heard it too much or at least been, you know, we think, you know, isn't this great? You know, Jesus had a picnic and and everybody's sitting there and they got the red checkered blankets and and everybody's having a wonderful time. and, And it's a nice story. Jesus fed them lunch. And then we just walk away and that's what we conclude. But if that's our conclusion, I want you to understand it's not their conclusion. And I would like on our last point this morning to turn over to John 6. And we're going to spend the rest of our time in John 6 as we finish up this message because John tells us what happened afterwards, after this feeding. And the crowd saw this event much more different than we often understand it as some picnic with Jesus. In fact, as the bread was passed out, The thousands and thousands of people began to murmur and perhaps finally roar in excitement as they sought to make him king. Look in verse 13. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So you see what their response is to this free lunch is that they're trying to force Christ to become a king. They're trying to start a revolution. And the reason why I think is told for us in verse 14 when it says, this indeed is, what is it? The prophet who is to come into the world they are referring to a prophecy which moses himself foretold in deuteronomy 18 when he said the lord your god will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your people they have been waiting for this prophet like moses and and here jesus is and and he's feeding the thousands in the wilderness and they recognize he's the prophet that has we've been told is coming for us In fact, this is the only miracle that Jesus ever accomplishes other than the resurrection that is recorded in all four Gospels. In in fact, in Luke's Gospel, this miracle immediately precedes Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah. And the point is that this is the final piece of evidence. This is the final piece of the puzzle that they could put it all together as they look at this man before thousands of people on a desolate hillside, speaking food into existence, supplying their needs. In fact, he is greater than Moses, isn't he? When Moses provided for them, there was never leftovers. You gather leftovers... Spoiled, And yet Jesus has, has enough bread for everyone to fill everyone, and still bread remains. He is the Messiah that has come to meet all their needs. He is, he is giving plenty for them all. He is the Lord of the harvest, the messianic host. He is the God of abundance. And they conclude, He is the prophet we've been waiting for. And therefore, just as Moses delivered us from Egypt, so Jesus will free us from Roman occupation, and we need to make Him king. And so they seek to take Him by force to do so. They want Jesus, but they want Him for the wrong reasons. This is why Jesus flees from them, runs away up the mountain. But they will follow Him. And the next day they will finally catch up to Him. As you see in John 6 and verse 26. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking Me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill." of loaves right? he's saying you guys are missing the point you're following me because I gave you lunch yesterday he wants to tell them the point verse 27 do not labor for a food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life stop working for perishable food start working for food that will last forever well, they're very interested in this. They want to know what is this labor to get this food. Verse 28, Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? How can we labor to get this eternal bread? Jesus answered, What is it? What is the labor? What must I do to have eternal life? All of you hear that question for, me, for a moment. What must you do to have eternal life? answer is recorded for us in Luke 6, verse 29. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God. That you believe in Him who He has sent. That's it. You believe in Him. You come to Him. You, You want this bread that lasts forever? Believe in Me. And they look at Him and they respond, Well, why should we believe in you? Well, can you do? Can you prove it to us? Can you show us a sign that we might believe in you? Verse thirty. So they said to him, "Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform?" They even have a suggestion. Verse thirty-one. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Can you do that? And at this point, I think Jesus has got to be pulling out his hair, thinking, "I just did that. Well, it was yesterday." Do you not remember I fed you all? And they're saying, hey, Moses, he gave everybody bread. Can't you do that? Give us a sign that we might believe in you. And yet Jesus is so incredibly patient with them. In verse 32, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. You see what he's saying? You see, you, you got it all wrong. Moses never fed you. My Father fed you. And, and, and when I feed you, I am not showing you simply that I am the new Moses. I am standing in place of Yahweh himself. I am the one who is giving you bread. I, I, I am the one who now feeds you just as my Father in heaven fed you. Well, you wonder, are they getting it? Verse 34, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Give us this eternal bread. We want it. Verse 35 is where Jesus is getting to. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. You see, Jesus, this whole point is to show us that Jesus brings life. He's come to bring them life. I'm the bread of life. Now, when you and I think of bread, what do we think of? I mean, what's the symbolic meaning behind bread? When We have a loaf in front of us we we i think we're tempted to think carbohydrates right that's the deep meaning for bread for us this might make me fat okay um but that's not what they thought when they thought of bread in fact if you ever travel to developing i mentioned last week that i was backpacking in tana i had a very interesting conversation about a man who just lives off his garden has no money and and i i don't know how we got on the subject we talked about diet food and i told him in america we have food we make food so that it gives you no calories and it just blew his mind. I mean, he could not understand why in the world would any The whole point of food is to get calories. To have energy and strength. Right? And so we, we have a totally different understanding of food than they had of food. When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, they don't have a grocery. They don't have a refrigerator. Their bread is not even certain. Bread meant life to them. And Jesus is saying, I'm here to give you life. In fact, I am the life. I'm life itself. He goes on to explain, not only am I the bread of life, I'm the one who satisfies you. Look what he says in verse 35. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I'm your satisfaction, he says. See, I'm not simply the one who gives you what satisfies you. I am the one who satisfies you. Don't look to my hand for satisfaction. Look to me for satisfaction. He says, if you partake of me, you'll never hunger again. Friends, you understand that you have a hunger that is deeper than a physical hunger. You understand that? You have a, you have a, a hunger that food can't fill and, and money can't fill and relationships can't fill and, and all a success and degrees and all that. You have a hunger that, that none of that can fill. And Jesus says, I alone can fill it. There was in the 20th century a, a famous... Philosopher, His name is John Paul Sartre, And he is an atheist and a Marxist and an existential, existentialist, something like that. And um, he denied God. He said a very famous saying. He said, God does not exist, I cannot deny. That my whole being calls out for God, I cannot forget. Isn't that fascinating? He says, I, I don't believe there is a God... But my whole being longs for God. There's a hunger in all of us that only God can fill. Jesus says, this hunger, uh, Sartre says, this hunger can't be filled. Jesus says, I can fill it. What we need is Jesus. What everyone is looking for, what everyone is looking for is Jesus. He is the one that satisfies. I was uh, earlier, uh, I guess end of last month, as you know, I was backpacking in uh, Glacier uh, National Park up in western, northwestern Montana. Gorgeous, ama- I was at one campground, it's called 50 Mountain, and, and you could literally from that campground above the Timberline on the Continental Divide, you could look out on the horizon and you could count 50 alpine meadow, uh, uh, peaks. Uh, and you see, it just, just goes on and on the, uh, as far as the eye can see. And I'm, I'm spending time with some people around the campfire out in the backcountry. And, and I'm t- engaging with this young man. And he says, he looks around he says, listen, Pastor. He says, this is my church. Right? You go to your church. I, I come out here to go to church. Now, he, he has rejected Christ and, and he's rejected the existence of God. But what I find fascinating, of course, that's totally wrong. But what I find fascinating is there something going on inside of him? He who rejected God. Something spiritual happening. There's, some, there's a hunger that's being met as he's, as he's standing on the continental divide or sitting at an alpine lake. And, and what's, what I find fascinating about that is you don't climb a mountaintop to feel important. You feel very, very small on the top of a mountain. And yet you feel very, very <laughs> joyful. You don't stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon to make yourself feel great. That's called insanity. You stand there and think, I am am very small. And what I find fascinating in in me, a believer, and in him, a non-believer, both of us, our moments of joy are not times of self-fulfillment, are not times of self-acclamation, but of times of self-forgetfulness. Because we are all made for joy. That comes from outside us we 're made to find our joy in someone so much bigger than ourselves we 're made to find our joy in God and you 've you stand at the edge of an ocean or the rim of a canyon or under a moonless star filled sky, and there's something there 's an echo there of something far greater than you. And your soul longs for it. We're made to know God. We're made to find our joy in God. Nothing else can satisfy our soul other than God. Everything will satisfy us for a little, whatever it is. And you pursue this relationship or you you pursue this thing. You you, you pursue these accomplishments. And it helps a little bit, but it, it fades quickly. And then there's this emptiness in you. And Jesus says, if you come to me, you will never hunger again. I am the only one who can take that thirst away from you. Because you are made for me. See, Jesus Christ is not simply here to forgive our sins. He is here to satisfy our souls in Him. And He invites us. He invites you even now. Come to me. Believe in me. And I will meet that need that you have. I will wash all your sins away. And I will satisfy you. And to the degree in which we Christians come to Christ and depend upon Christ is the degree in which we shall find that satisfaction in us. See, he brings life and he brings satisfaction to our longings. But you notice how long he provides this for us? Jump down in John in verse 51. Look what Jesus says. He says, I am the living bread who came from heaven. So this is this is what, he, again, I'm the bread of life. I'm those living bread. Well, what is this bread that he talks about, right? How do we get this bread? Well, he finally defines it. Right? Read on verse 50, 51. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. It's my body. Of course, this is referring to his crucifixion. He's saying to us, I, the reason I can forgive your sins, the reason that I could give you life, the reason I can reconcile you to a holy God, the reason I could satisfy all that you need is that I'm going to the cross and I'm going to give up my body. And three days later, I'm going to be raised from the dead. In fact, I find it very interesting. Remember when he fed the 5,000? Remember what he did? He, he looked to heaven, right? He blessed the bread. And then what did he do with the bread? He broke it, right? Remember that? And then he, then he gave it out, right? He first blessed and then he broke. And I, I think what Jesus is teaching us is that you, you want a new Moses. I understand that. You want someone that's going to fill your bellies in the wilderness. But I'm not simply a new Moses. I'm the ultimate Moses. I haven't simply come to liberate you for a while in political oppression. I've come to liberate you from sin and death and futility. I haven't come simply to give you a law. I've come to fulfill that law. And I haven't come just to give you a promised land. I've come to give you the promised land. I one day will reverse all the consequences of sin upon a new earth. And I will give that to you forever. And how does He do this? Well, when He's hanging on the cross, He looks at His enemies, doesn't He? And He he blesses them. Father, forgive them. Will you forgive them? And then he actually accomplishes what needs to happen in order for the Father to forgive them by breaking himself. He blesses, and then he himself is broken. This is how we receive this eternal life, this satisfaction, this bread of life. It is through the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you know this? There's, there must be someone in here that's just so desperately hungering for something in life. I tell you, Christ is what you are longing for. Some of you, my brothers and sisters, are, are caught in sin. And you think this sin is going to provide some pleasure. It's The only reason you sin is you believe the lie that if I do this, I'll find joy and happiness. And it never lasts. It is only there for a moment and then it's gone. Jesus says, if you, if you come to me, if the degree in which you come to me, the degree in which I will satisfy, what is your looking for? Come to me. Perhaps all of us can take steps towards Christ today. May he help us to do so. Our Father, we're thankful for our Lord. We're thankful, Father, that He invites us and empowers us and strengthens us to do ministry beyond our own abilities and that He wants us to be channels of His grace and love. And yet more than that, we're thankful that He is the bread of life. He is the one who has come into this earth to Bring us what we long for. We are made for Him. We are made for You, Jesus. And yet we're so fickle at times and so wayward at times and take our eyes off You and look at the problems in front of us or our own abilities or inabilities or run after this or run after that. And You have blessed us richly. And I'm not in any way believing that we're not supposed to enjoy the things of this world. But they they can't replace You. Will you help us to believe that? Will you help all of us to begin to pursue you with greater joy and fervency and commitment and devotion, believing that you are indeed the bread of life? Will we leave this place concluding to take steps to come after you? Will you not even, even this very moment, by your Spirit, will you begin to impress upon our hearts what we should do even this week to seek after Christ? that we might be used by him and blessed in doing so. And we pray for our friend here, or our many friends, perhaps they've been here for years coming to this church or another hearing the gospel proclaimed, and yet for some reason they keep you at arm's length. And maybe they, they just they want to keep you away even now, just longing for this prayer to end so they can forget about these truths. Will you not let them, Father? Will you by your spirit grab a hold of them, take the veils off their eyes, cause them to be born again, that they might bow their knee to King Jesus? Will you, Father, cause them to believe that they might place their faith in the one who will forgive them and satisfy them for all their days? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.